welcome to the Acting for Stage and Screen podcast. My name's James Harvey, and I'm the program leader of a brand new acting degree in York, created in partnership with ALRA, the Academy of Live and Recorded Arts. It's called the BA in Acting for Stage and Screen, ALRA endorsed. More on that in a bit. The idea of this podcast is that I'll be interviewing loads of successful professionals within the theatre, TV and film industries. Lots of actors, but also people working in other areas of the industry too. Directors, writers, producers and so on. Through chatting with my guests, I want to find out about their careers, their methods, and to get an honest insight into what it's like working professionally in stage and screen. I hope you enjoy the pod. And if you're someone who wants to train professionally as an actor, then take a look at our course. Follow us on Instagram at York College BA Acting and go to our webpage to find out more. You can apply on UCAS course code BA45. We're auditioning this year and we start teaching in September 2021. Maybe you'll be with us. I'll give you some more information on the degree at the end of the pod. But for now, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Acting for Stage and Screen podcast. Welcome to the Acting for Stage and Screen podcast. Today, I am absolutely delighted to have as my guest the actor, George Costigan. He's an actor I've long admired, and George has been working for over 40 years on stage and on screen. He's played in theatre, iconic roles such as Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman, Estrogen in Waiting for Godot, Claudius in Hamlet, and James Tyrone in Long Day's Journey Into Night. Not to mention that he was the original Mickey in Blood Brothers. A familiar face on screen in film and TV, he might still be best known as Bob from Rita Sue and Bob 2. But he's also appeared in Shirley Valentine, Calendar Girls, Clint Eastwood's film Hereafter, and in the wonderful Sally Wainwright TV series Gentleman Jack and Happy Valley. And that's just to pick out a few highlights. George, I don't know how we're going to fit it all in, but welcome to the Acting for Stage and Screen podcast. Let's start at the beginning. How did you get into acting? Blimey, how did I get into acting? Um, Anne Graham's group round the corner at the church hall, and they did a play. And um, at no point did um, did I think, oh, why didn't they ask me? I'd love to do that. Didn't didn't occur to me at all. And then uh, a woman called Margaret Rourke, to whom really I owe everything, and she is the auntie of Josie Rourke, who used to run the Donmark. Yeah. And, um, and she came round to my house and she didn't even come in. I remember this vividly. I opened the door and I went, oh, hello, Margaret. She went, we're doing another play, a proper play, a three-act play, and you're playing the lead. Huh. And I went, am I? All right, okay, <laughs> right. Um, and so, you know, off she went. <laughs> and, and, and we rehearsed this play, which was... Um, a genre that's disappeared now it used to be called a northern comedy. So it was all about don't go there. Um, and to cut the long story short, um, we got to the first night and people laughed all night. And I stood on the stage at the end with all the other people in the play and they clapped. And it was like an almighty light bulb going on in my head. I suddenly went, oh, this is what I needed. People to like me. <laughs> it's so banal, isn't it? So, what happened after the lightning bolt? Did you uh, did you go to drama school? What did you do to break into the profession? Um, 
well, the day after the lightning bolt, I went, right, how do you do this? How do you do this for a living? And um, everybody went, you have to go to college. Well, I completely screwed up school. I got two O-levels, needed five. So the next year was getting three other O-levels. And I got into the college. The college was amazing, brilliant tutors. There were days when you wandered around going, there can't be anybody getting this kind of education. Anybody. Because they were all top class. Even though you had nothing to judge it against, you just knew because how much they were pushing you. First thing we did, we'd been, we'd been there five weeks and we did the Marat Sard. And then he, he found... That's, that's I know. quite a piece for a young, young group, isn't it? Fantastic, man. It was, ama it was amazing. Um, and then, you know, when I met Niall's mum, she'd been to Central and they hadn't done a full play. We were hardened pros at the end of the, at the end of the first year. We took Macbeth, Importance of Being Earnest, two new plays, a dance programme and a review we wrote ourselves to the Edinburgh Festival. And we won Best Actress, a lady called Pam Blackwood, and we won Best Review. And after that fantastic training experience, you found yourself working with the legendary Liverpool Everyman Theatre Company. Um, and they have had a long history of fantastic actors working there. And I believe around the same time, they had uh, actors like Julie Walters, Bernard Hill, Jonathan Price, Matthew Kelly, Anthony Scher, Pete Postlethwaite, some fantastic names of, of theatre and screen over the, over the years. Um, an extraordinary company, as I say. And you also worked with fantastic emerging playwrights like Alan Bleasdale and Willie Russell. You worked um, with him on one of his earliest plays. You were Bert in John Paul, George, Ringo and Bert. Tell us about that. Well, that was the year's run. That, that ran for a year in London. And after, you know, I'd never done that before. Everybody knew it was what you were supposed to do. Your name was in lights, la, la, la. Hurrah, hurrah, here I am. I'm a star now. Bored out of my tits. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so was everybody else as well, because they all ran into the same thing, which is, how do I keep this fresh? Well, in the end, you just have to grit your teeth, really, and, and do your very best. But, and, and you know, that was fascinating because that is a, quite an early Willie Russell play. And I've done a lot of them since and got to know him very well. And oh, my God, his writing has improved. Right. Like I did uh, one of his plays called Breeze Block Park down in Bristol. Oh, yeah. It took me forever to learn it just because I can say this now, because I know it's overwritten. Five years later, we do Blood Brothers and I've got it. I've learned it because he knows what he's doing. That's all fascinating, all that, mm. all that stuff. I suppose you develop your craft as a playwright just as you do as an actor, don't you? Like you're able to bring it down. Well, when you're an actor, you, you eventually learn that you're aiming for clarity. And, and I suppose that's the same with the writer. Oh, James, that's Barry Rutter. I'm not, you know, Rutter's a paradox, but he did say at one point, the three greatest things in the theatre are clarity, clarity, and clarity. <laughs> and the greatest of these is clarity. <laughs> There's a lot yeah. of wisdom in that. If we wanted to be bitchy, one could think of quite a few actors who, if we were to discuss them, you'd go, see, that's not clear. It's very flashy. It's yeah. very clever. It's very, you're supposed to admire it, but is it actually getting through to you? No. That's not a geographical thing. That's just, you know. Um, and, you know, yes, absolutely. Of course, yeah. He stopped writing plays once he wrote Shirley Valentine. 
there's nothing else to write. He's he's honed the craft down to one voice, and the play is perfect. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think it's a, a real um, perfect piece, and I really enjoyed the film as well, um, which you're in, and you seem to be having an awful lot of fun playing the uh, English tourist abroad Dougie. We got a month on Mykonos, James. You know. <laughs> What's not to like? It was, um, I thought, well, I can say that I thought the film was terrible. Yeah. Um, and then after we'd done it, I'd read the, the play. I'd never seen it. Although, here's the thing. Have you ever heard Willie read it? No, never. Oh, man. The, the, the lady who started it, Noreen Kershaw, got ill. And there are recordings, and they're not too hard to find. You can find them on YouTube, of Willie reading Shirley Valentine. Yeah with a beard, from a lectern to an audience in Liverpool. And all you can hear is women screeching with laughter. Wow. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and that's the right, and I suppose it's like, what's so strong about that for the audience, the audience has that recognition, don't they? That it's like he's speaking something that's maybe been unsaid at that point to a large degree and, and nailing it in that, well, it seems to me as a bloke anyway, like nailing that, early midlife crisis kind of moment for the woman. Have you ever seen it on stage? I went, I went down to watch a girlfriend of mine do it in Plymouth and mm. I looked along the row and I was right about women laughing and you look along the row near the end and it's just men crying. And she said in the bar afterwards, the people who came up to her more than any woman to go, oh, that was great, great, was fellas going, that's me, that, I'm Joe, me. Yeah. ashamed of yeah. how it's a fantastic piece of work <laughs> a great writer um, he's a great writer and uh, and obviously much celebrated for Blood Brothers I mean um, it's remarkable the sustained success of that play like my son's doing GCSE drama and he's, he's doing it it's a set text you know and he read it and encountered it for the first time this week and loved it so, uh, yeah, I know. You couldn't have known, obviously, that it was going to have such lasting cultural impact when you first read the script. Well, uh, I must be honest, and I like telling this story. I wasn't the first Mickey. He wrote it for a children's theatre company in Liverpool, and it was no songs, uh, five actors and a pram. And all the props came out of the pram. Right. And there was one song. I think she sang Marilyn Monroe. But all the rest of it was no. But Willie always knew he wanted to extend it into a musical. But that 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 um, that version, that children's version, is one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen in all my life. It was no interval, and a bloke came out at the start, just like what your son read, and it went. You ever hear the story of the Johnson twins? Were one, and they died on the very same day. And then the gags are so good. Yeah. You forget all about that. And then suddenly, an hour in, you go, oh, no. And there's a train coming at you, and there's nothing you can do. And I was destroyed. So the fact that it has been a success, I think people will do that play as long as you've got a class system. As long as you've got division between people for no good reason except money, people will do that play. Yes, I'm sure that's the case. Um, so what were some of the acting challenges for you 
playing Mickey? How did you transform yourself, for example, into that um, young, uh, energetic, young whippersnapper <laughs> in the early parts of the play? As director I ever worked with said, it's all cowboys and Indians, isn't it? And so I did go around somebody's house who had a seven-year-old son and watched him. And his physical gestures were so sophisticated that you thought, right, well, if I do that, nobody's going to believe, you know. Rehearsals were dominated by the fact that um, Willie and Chris Bond cast Barbara Dixon to play the mum. Mm. Barbara Dixon had never acted in her life. Her, yeah. she, she had one line when we did John Paul George, Ringo and Burt, because she sang all the Beatles songs. So they kind of go, Barbara's playing your mum. I think I'm like a year younger than Barbara. Yeah. Um, and she's never acted before. And so the rehearsals were completely dominated by watching Chris Bond teach this very bright woman how to act. So you had moments in rehearsal where you go, just a minute, Barbara, when you turn, don't turn that way because we'll get you back. We don't want you back. Turn the other way. So we And she's going, all right, all right, okay, okay. And you watched her absorb all this information over five weeks. And, you know, it's back to where, where you and I started this conversation, which is fascinating. In the end, because she was so raw, she was brilliant. She was marvellous. But in the end, she got ill when we were in London because she had no technique, nowhere to hide. So she would come into scenes. I used to dread the prison scene because she'd come in and she'd lock eyes with you and she'd pour her heart out at you. And, and it wasn't that you minded or anything, but you did sort of look at her and think, have you not noticed, Barbara, that sometimes I look away from you just to take a rest, just to come back to fill up again? I'm not, I'm not shirking the scene, but if we just play it like that, like that, it's just going to... And, and she just had to stop one night, and I wasn't really surprised. But the, here's an interesting story. I remember saying to Willie, why did you take that risk on Barbara? That was a hell of a risk. And he said, oh, I knew she was smart, but he said, also, if you notice, she sings three songs before she speaks. I knew damn well that if she sang those three songs as she can, the audience were in her pocket before she'd even open her mouth. And of course, that was right. Well, it, it was a pretty prescient, smart piece of casting, really, considering where she went yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's interesting, yeah, yeah, yeah. the kind of, the cut, I mean, obviously, she's an exceptional case. But like the casting of sort of non-actors, and see, I like makes me think of like Ken Loach films and things like that, you know, where it, it can work really well on camera and a one-off if they're playing yep. kind of close, really close to their own experience. But you need that Absolutely. technique, to, especially on stage, I suppose, to sustain it and and to survive an intense role as well with your yep. your mind and your heart intact. Kind of thing. Absolutely. Uh, the other thing that was fascinating about that was the night she was poorly, um, the understudy had to go on. The understudy is a working class Liverpool actress. And, you know, Barbara's from Dundee. I, she D Dundee? I think she's from Dundee. So she, she's not Scouse. So suddenly, me and Andy were playing the Brothers, are faced with a new mother with no rehearsal. We hadn't rehearsed with her. And Ethna's point of view, Barbara suffered through the play through the show she suffered mrs johnson suffered and quite right ethna's attitude because she's a scouser i think went 
right, how many laughs can I get out of this? How much laughter can I get to survive? So me and him are running into scenes. And there's this woman going, <laughs> it got utterly different performance with the same words. But, you know, a different, she chased us with a broom one night. It was just amazing. Anyway, it's amazing. Yeah, but it is, isn't it? Uh, I mean, the interpretive differences that uh, each individual actor brings to the same role, as you say, the same words, is always going to be really fascinating, I think, for an audience and, and for the other actors um, who are working with them. It's only when you believe, and I think I do believe, that the writer only had one thought in his or her head. I don't believe Shakespeare finished Hamlet and went, whoa, that'll, that'll fuck them for centuries. They'll never know how to play it. I don't believe that. I think, he, I think he had an idea, but he's good enough to support a whole manner of, in, of interpretations. Well, indeed. And of course, interpretation is kind of where the, um, where the actor is allowed to, to make their own mark most strongly. So thinking uh, again about, about Mickey, what, what were your priorities when you were interpreting that role? The, the one thing I thought was, I'm going to be more open with this man, Andy Wadsworth, than I've ever been with anybody else in my life, because I want to be that close to him. And so I did. I told him all manner of stuff, poor bloke. <laughs> all manner of stuff that was worrying me at the time about my life and Niall's mom and la la la. But I did. I trusted him completely. So the, the whole class thing was never part of our furniture at all. We just liked each other as, as characters. And so, you know, I suppose the audience went, well, why not? They're both likable. And, and then you let the class thing deal with itself because you can't act class. Yeah. You can act being upper class, but you can't act a class divide. Mm. You can't do that. You can only play. You can only play. What do you want? Mm. And how am I going to get it? Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you a fabulous story. This is my favourite story of all time. <laughs> His best laugh was when we met when we were 14. And came across each other on a hill and he said his line was well fuck a priest as he recognized me and there was one night when he um he came on and he overtimed it he overtimed the pause so the audience knew now in the silence that this line was going to be really good because they could tell the actor thought so he yeah. said the line next to nothing happened and as he shook my hand he muttered under his breath Oh, please yourselves. And I, we came off and I said to him, right, Andy, what are we doing here? Are we telling a story or are we manipulating the audience? And he said, well, I'm manipulating the audience. And I said, well, I wish you wouldn't. I wish you'd tell the story. Well, very righteous, okay? <laughs> cut, to, cut to about five or six weeks later. And it was because we were lying on the stage at the very start, dead, you could listen to the audience, and I knew, I knew this audience was right up for it. Yeah. And so then we don't come on for 20 minutes, me and him, and you listen for those telltale two gags that are in there with Mrs. Lyons, and, and you could feel them simmering, simmering, simmering. And we came on, and I, I just went for everything really quickly. And Andy's dead smart. He saw exactly what I was doing. He's actually much more experienced than me, and he just fed the lines back. And we built this audience up to a crescendo until 
I can't remember what my line was, but we clenched hands and they fucking roared with laughter. And I said to him, we've got them. And he came off and went, and are we manipulating the audience? Brothers, <laughs> Which is interesting to a young actor, any actor. We did, um, I don't know, six months of it, too long. But anyway, there was maybe 250 shows. And we came to one and the, it was a matinee and there were 66 people in the audience. So you've now got a seat and they put all three old, they put all three rows of people right at the very front. So we're looking at 900 empty purple seats. And for no reason that I could ever explain to you, and no reason that I ever questioned or asked anybody else about, for some bonkers reason, the whole company went for that matinee like a train. And it was the only time we got a complete standing ovation. Explain that. You can't. And then 25 years later, I met somebody who said they were at that matinee. And I went, weren't we good? <laughs> and she said, yes, you were. And, you know, uh, you, you, those kind of things, you, you can't. You, yeah. I, I don't know how to rationalize that stuff. It no, just happened. Something, maybe something about that old thing, like even if there's a, you know, it's a cliche, isn't it? Massive cliche, but even if there's only one person in the audience, they yeah, deserve yeah. the same show or a better show. When I was doing um, Mice and Men with Matthew Kelly, he had this big, big laugh as he said, Tell me about the rabbits, George. Mm -hmm. And he did something with his leg. Now, Matthew's got very long legs, yeah. so it was funny. And over the course of doing that play for 13 weeks, the laugh went away for the same reason, I think, that he telegraphed it. And I said to him, what are you going to do about that, that gag? And he went, it'll come back. And it did. <laughs> and I couldn't tell you any of the points along the way or what he was thinking, but he did not change it. And eventually the laughter came back. Shall we move on and talk about your film work a bit? I'd love to talk to you about Rita Sue and Bob too, which is famously the work of a then teenage writer from a very deprived background, um, Andrea Dunbar. I mean, Andrea, uh, for those that don't know, she grew up with some real, real deprivation um, on the, the Sink Estate, the Buttershaw Estate in Bradford. And um, you can really see that in her work. Uh, in Rita Sue and Bob too, you know, it's described frequently as a comedy and it is very funny, it's a very funny film. But I think, for me, the film still stands up because of its social commentary, really, and it sheds a light on that world of the Buttershaw estate that she knew so well and that was really sort of her creative muse. You see um, physical abuse, racism, alcoholism, all these um, destructive uh, elements of society but it's a film which doesn't deal with those themes in a moralizing way uh, or in a flippant way it just shows life as andrea dunbar and the people she knew lived it i suppose um, what do you make of the ongoing interest in in andrea dunbar actually all these years later i'm thinking of the verbatim play a state affair that revisited the butterworth estate sort of 10 15 years after rita sue and bob too and found it rife with drug addiction and crime and violence. And of course, the amazing docudrama film, The Arbor, um, that you were a part of. What's your take on that? Have you seen Shirley? 
Surely's her last play. That'll break your heart. Fantastic play, really good play. And you you can't help but watch it and go, oh my God, what else would she have done if she hadn't, you know, broken? Much more sophisticated. She's got overlapping conversations and all sorts of theatre stuff that she's yeah. learnt yeah. and dared to try. And it's screechingly funny and so correct about blokes. Right. Honestly, God. in the same way that Willie really seems to understand women. Yeah. Andrea's take on blokes is cruel. <laughs> <laughs> well, from what you can see in her work, it, she maybe has some good reason to be cruel. Well, quite. Yeah. In, in um, the arbor, um, to anyone who hasn't seen this, it's sort of, I mean, it, I guess it gets described as an avant-garde piece because the fact that they've taken uh, verbatim interview audio, haven't they, and then have actors lip sync. Oh, you mean the film, The Arbor? I'm talking about the film, The Arbor, yeah. Maya Bernard's film, yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, I thought fantastic, yeah. And um, and what was it like being, because you 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 were Wiggy, weren't you, That uh, another one of Andrea's kind of, um, I guess, former partners. What's it like hearing the audio of the real person speaking and then lip syncing for that? Very, very strange indeed. I mean, you just got to go with it and go, I, I'm going to trust you that this is going to work because I can't see what I'm learning here. But, you know, that's what she wanted. And and I must say, when I saw the film and watched other people doing, it didn't bother me for a second. No, well, I don't think you... I don't, I don't think you think of it, as it which, is, which is sort of stranger as what you would think when you hear about this quite left field, idea. I mean, left field for a film anyway, and yeah. not quite left field, you know, I, obviously there's, there is recorded theatre kind of been developed over the last few years, isn't there? But it, 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 it's not something that you think of, you just see the actors, but then you, when you retrospectively having done it, I mean, oh, I was actually really listening to the voices of those real people that experienced those times. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. It was interesting. What was it I wouldn't like? Rush to do it again. No, I, I would. It's one of those things where you go. Well, if you get the chance, do it because the because the technique, um, and and the technical work you have to do to think, get your head into thinking like that, is fascinating. Both those films, Rita Sue and Bob Two and The Arbor, were both shot on location in Buttershaw, weren't they? What was that like? Hell, yeah. I mean, well, it's gone. it's gone now, but there'll be plenty more elsewhere. Mm. It was horrible. Uh, you know, the, I, I didn't envy anybody living there. There was no amenities. Uh, it's a rough, rough place. But, you know, I'm from Salford, and I know there are bits of Salford that are like that. Here's a silly story. A mate of mine was directing a, a little film that he wanted to do about his own life, which was um, when he was a kid. His mum, who was an alcoholic, serious alcoholic, was dependent on him. So he found this rough, rough house in Salford. And, and I said, can I help, Kenny? And he said, yeah, you could look after the van because we'll bring a van with all the stuff in it. So here you go. Um, I'm sat in the back of this van and all these kids on this estate come to see what's going on because it's new and because there's nothing else for them to do. No youth club, no swings even, no football pitch, nothing. So there's a van. And this kid goes to me, you're, you're Bob. And I think to myself, 
right, we can't have this. The last thing this film crew needs is a whole stack. And I go, don't be stupid. How can I be Bob if I'm sat in the back of a lorry looking after things? Well, you, you'll look. And I, so then I, I go, who's Bob? Who, who, what are you on about anyway? Who, Bob who? And they go, reach to Bob too. I go, oh, I haven't seen that. What's it? These kids, none of them, I was like 45 at the time. None of them, the, the majority of them weren't born when Andrea wrote the play, then recited the script to me. They knew it because it meant so much to them, because it was true yeah. about what it's like living on a sink estate like that yeah. and how you take the laughs where you can get them. What was the, what was the reaction uh, to the film at the time with public and press? And what actually, what was Andrea Dunbar's reaction? <laughs> <laughs> Two completely different things. Andrea disowned it. Oh, did she? Yep. There's what a fabulous book. Oh, there's a, there's a book called uh, Black Teeth and a Brilliant Smile that a writer whose name is going to escape me, a female writer, wrote about Andrea, and she's got it all in there. Andrea fell out very badly with Alan. She said, that's not what I wrote, and you know it, and you've sold me down the river. The answer to your first question and why I laughed is because um, I took, I sat to watch it. The first time I saw it, I got my mum on my right-hand side and my wife on my left-hand side. And we watched this film. And, oh, and my mum said, well, I don't think I'll be telling too many people about that. <laughs> the next day, me, Siobhan, Michelle, Patsy Pollock, Oscar Lewinstein, and Sandy Lieberson, the producer, all went to the Brighton Film Festival, which was where the film was shown, to do a Q&A with the press. The press... I kid you not, James, to a man, did not believe what they'd watched. Yeah, making it up, aren't you? And we all went, what do you mean, making it up? No, but it's a, it's a comedy. It's, it's, a, it's a like a, they couldn't, they just could not take it on. And, and, it, and we all sort of sat there going, are you mad or something? Until Oscar said, you know, and they listened to Oscar because he was a Southerner and rich and well, I'm being mean here, but that, they listened to him and he said, look, you people, this is a report from the front line by somebody who lives there. Um, take it from us. This is for real. But that group of press people couldn't believe it. And eventually I ended up saying to them, I, I said to them, look, I'm in a play at the moment and I'm playing the doorman of a club in London where men pay 70 quid for a bottle of champagne for the chance of sex with one of the girls afterwards. And if we took it to Bradford, to the Buttershaw, and went, this used to play about people paying 70 quid, they'd just go, no. That would never happen. That never happens, mate. That's a, that's a lie. You're making it up. And you are doing exactly the same to us. It was fascinating. I was really shocked yeah. that they didn't believe it. Yeah. And because even, I mean, like, so I grew up in the Northeast and not in any way in the, not, not in any way in the similar circumstances, but because I grew up in the Northeast in the 80s, I remember seeing, you know, you just had to go for a drive and you would see a state along the similar lines. It, oh, it, it oh, was, yeah, the architecture of those times, you know, like Thatcher had kind of ripped out the shipping and ripped out the mines and then there were the estates that were kind of left, yeah. Jules and I were talking about Sunderland last night, just yeah. the state of, you know, what happened to the, oh, 
another story, another play. Yeah. Um, I, 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 th I, th I think I've made clear, I, I think Reassault 2 is a fantastic film. It, it was obviously intentionally edgy and it, and it can be a very uncomfortable watch. And I remember watching it as a teenager myself and really just sort of empathizing with the excitement of the girls, I suppose, you know, on that kind of teenage level. But, um, and their giddiness and their attitude of kind of not, not giving a shit about the older people's attitudes. But then when I rewatched it, I, I find Bob much more unsettling character now as an adult and a father, you know, than I ever did then. It's because uh, his actions are pretty predatory, really, aren't they? I mean, did, um, did you see it that think, way? He's a, he's a, you know, in, in modern day, he's a paedophile. Yeah. Um, Which had never struck me think, back then, you know, at the, at the time no. I was watching yeah. I think he'd be horrified by that. But yeah. the man thinks with his dick. Yeah. That's, that's all, you know, it, it wasn't a terribly difficult character to, to get a stance on. Mm. He was pleased with himself, so that suited me preening around in a white suit. Yeah. <laughs> But eventually, it was all about kind of get me into it. That's all that mattered. I mentioned earlier that you played some really iconic stage roles over your career, uh, one of which was Willie Loman in Arthur Miller's amazing masterpiece, Death of a Salesman, which you performed here in York at the Theatre Royal. I wonder how you go about approaching playing such a monumental part with all its theatrical history, or, or can you not think about that? Do you have to just um, throw that away? been all that you, you know if, if you go well I'm going to give my Willie Loman and it won't be like his or hers you know you're screwed um, <laughs> and it was a very short rehearsal period and I honest to god the truth is I just put my head down yeah. and, and learnt it and, and, and was very pleased with what what we did I thought it was a really you know and, and, and to be to have that much to say in a masterpiece is a privilege that I can't describe to you. But there were nights in the theatre when you heard 600 people change their mind about something. Just on great, great writing. Usually when Linda went, something awful's happening to him and attention must be paid. Well, just at the point where the audience had gone, he's a loser, man. You know, uh, it, it was, a, it was a, a great experience. Real, real privilege. And I did Long Day's Journey in Tonight. The same thing. You just can't, you know, I did watch a film of it. I, you know, sometimes it's a cheat to watch, to learn your lines. <laughs> when I played Claudius, I just got six Hamlets out from the yeah. video shop and watched them all. And by the end time I got to the end of it, I got the lines in and I pinched all the best ideas. <laughs> all these great, uh, patriarch roles coming your way now then. So like, I, I mean, James, James Tyrone and, and Willie Loman are probably the two American kind of classic roles in that mold, aren't they? Claudius is well, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf as well, yeah. which is another privilege. Can't tell you the, the, de the, the delicacy. Oh God. Um, there was one gag where I said one night and I just, got it right I was lucky I got it right and I said where's where's Martha where's my little yum yum and the audience laughed and I could not get that laugh back oh. I couldn't find yeah. that moment of relaxation where I didn't know it was a gag yeah. and you just said it for nothing um and those you know 
but that's great writing yeah and i you know the last thing i did was faith healer by brian freel which i would put up against all of that lot put up against them not better than any of them but put up there right there with them fantastic piece of work an absolute privilege well iconic american stage roles um gritty british uh, independent movies and uh, of course you've also appeared in countless television productions over the years and in more recent times you've worked with the writer and director Sally Wainwright who as I mentioned before is rightly celebrated for Gentleman Jack and Happy Valley which I think is one of my genuinely one of my favorite British drama series ever I think it's absolutely fantastic what is it that you appreciate about Sally Wainwright as a dramatist She's the real deal. It's the real deal. You're absolutely 100% correct about Happy Valley. It's landmark telly, grown-up telly, telly for, telly for grown-ups, nothing patronising, nothing spelt out. It's brilliant. And she's, it's ruthless. It's nasty as all hell. She played Neverton Gallagher, who was kind of a patsy in a kidnap extortion plot that went badly wrong and... Uh, his daughter, it was on stage daughter, obviously on screen daughter got kidnapped and abused. And um is it is is the gift in that role the stakes? You know, it's such high stakes for the actors to yeah. play. Yeah. Yeah. How, yeah, you if if you hit the level of of what it must feel like, and it's a scary place to go, you know, we've got three children and the idea of one of them being in that kind of danger is not a happy place to to work from but you've got no choice so if you hit the level that was what you were always looking for from the director am i, am I there is it is it wound up enough because you you know it's not too far from there to a bit over the top yeah um, that, that's the balance isn't it i often trying to get student, young young student actors to go to go more they, they, they can be scared of of taking that risk because they're yeah. capable of being melodramatic, I suppose. But you're like, actually, what you want is just short of melodramatic, really. And yeah. yeah, and that's sometimes, yeah. yeah. That that was melodrama. My yeah. daughter's been capped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's not it's not plotted drama. It's not not um, it, it's it's melodrama. Yeah. But you know, underneath it, you've got Sally Wainwright. Yes, who turns melodrama into something with more depth, I suppose. I mean, melodrama is something you much more associate with the stage. Um, How do you differentiate between your work as an actor on stage and in the theatre? It's only scale, really. Just, you know, I don't think I'm that great at it, and I've worked with some people who are. I work with Helen Mirren, you know, who's done a lot more stage than I've done, and bigger you know, bigger stuff. And I was doing a film with her and she went, whoa, whoa, calm down. Have you any idea how big your eyes are? You don't need to do all that. Just think and it'll be there. That was good advice. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Faith Healer we did to auditoriums where there was 450 people there. And the next night there was an audience where there were 70 people there. And you just adjust. You know, you can't, if you, if you come out, like you did last night, they're going to go, why is he shouting? Mm. Yeah. And if it, if it was, well, like, you know, you and I are not shouting at each other now. We're not. 
uh, and that's a relief to me. Perhaps we should draw it to a close there before we do start shouting at each other. Um, so, George, look, thank you so much for chatting to me today. It's been a real pleasure. And, um, and thanks for sharing some of those stories and reflections on such a long and varied career. I'm sure it will be um, warmly appreciated by my audience. So thanks again. And all that remains for me to do is to thank you, the listeners, uh, for tuning in again to the Acting for Stage and Screen podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to um, for all our future episodes. And, and uh, do give us a, a five-star review if you have the time. That would be really helpful to us to get the word out. This episode, I also want to thank our editor, Chelsea Clark, for all her hard work in making these Zoom interviews properly audible for us and getting rid of all my mistakes. Thanks, Chelsea. And thanks again to today's fantastic guest, George Costigan. See you next time. Before you go, I just wanted to tell you a little bit more about our new acting training degree, the BA Acting for Stage and Screen Hour Endorsed. This is a unique drama school informed training delivered at the York College University Centre and is suitable for students who are determined to become professional actors working in today's theatre, film and TV industries. It's unique in a few ways. Firstly, because this course is created with and endorsed by ALRA, the Academy of Live and Recorded Arts. ALRA are one of the UK's very top drama schools and bring with them a national and international reputation for excellence in higher education drama training. Our close partnership with such a well-respected drama school will be invaluable for our training professionals. Another way we're unique is that our course is a two-year accelerated degree. So you can achieve your degree, become a professionally trained actor and enter the acting profession more quickly and with fees of only £8,640 a year. This is because we're really conscious that the overall cost of funding degree study has massively increased over recent years and a two-year accelerated programme will be vastly less expensive than the conventional three-year drama training route, especially when you take into account living costs, fees over the lifetime of a course and shorter time studying before entering the profession. It's a full honours degree with 26 hours of contact time per week and a wide range of opportunities to perform and to network with industry professionals. If you decide at the end of the two years that you want to continue your studies, then there is the possibility of studying at master's level at ALRA. So if this sounds like the kind of place you can imagine yourself being, learning practically how to be an actor on both stage and screen and getting loads of really meaningful performance experience, being seen by industry professionals and maybe going on to do a master's at ALRA or just getting into being a working actor quicker than your peers, then you need to apply to the BA Acting for Stage and Screen ALRA endorsed through UCAS, course code BA45. You'll be asked to audition with us and if you're successful, we will work with you to make your experience an exceptional two years, which will set you on the course towards your future success. Keep following us on Instagram at York College BA Acting for exciting announcements throughout the year. And do keep listening and subscribe to the Acting for Stage and Screen podcast for more conversations with fantastic theatre, film and TV industry guests in the future.